Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. All right. Oh, yeah. One thing I wanted to just say quickly. I had thanked you all for those who were here last week or the week before even. Just wanted to thank people for supporting Gary in my absence. Um, He really enjoyed coming. I was able to listen to his Dharma talk on the weekend. I really enjoyed it. It was very interesting. I hadn't heard. If you haven't heard it, it's up on the podcast and it's um, it's on the jhanas really about tranquility and about a particular type of meditation that I hadn't really heard of. And it was really interesting. So I just wanted to thank you for supporting him. The downloading, a bunch of people downloaded the, the Dharma talk after it was up. So thanks for participating there. And I also just wanted to thank you all for the contributions, the Donna that you're offering Wednesday Wake Up, because that allowed me to offer him Donna, and that's where that that money came from. So I really wanted to thank you for making that happen and allowing that to happen. Um, As you know, uh, when we start going live again, I want to bring in guest teachers. And so it was nice to know that we could bring a guest teacher in. They could be supported financially with Donna and with participation. And I just thought that was a nice treat. So thanks so much for for helping me to create that. I thought that was really cool. All right, we are back at Wednesday Wake Up. I, For some reason, I'm just excited about this topic. I know some of you, last week we talked about the two qualities that the Buddha encourages all students to have when they're walking the path. So one is truthfulness, and um, the other one that we're going to be uh, talking about today is the willingness to be observant. That's the the second one, truthfulness and the ability to be observant. And we'll go into this. There's two parts of it. So maybe one part tonight and maybe another part Uh, next week. We'll just kind of see the time. But I wanted to give myself plenty of time to actually talk about it and kind of flesh it out a little bit. But we're going to talk about being observant, which is kind of strange because like, isn't that mindfulness? (laughs) Isn't that kind of obvious? Like, hey, if you want to be on the Eightfold Path, you really got to be observant. It's like, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) It's It's a path of mindfulness. But it really means something specific. So hang in there with me. I'll, I'll unpack this for you a little bit because I think it's pretty fascinating. So truthfulness we went into, and now we're going to go into the observance part. And when the Buddha says you need to have a willingness to be observant, this is talking about a willingness to intentionally look at more subtle layers of reality. This is about in part, the willingness to seek out what the Buddha says are more subtle layers of suffering and more subtle layers of happiness. So you're looking at the world with this intention to be observant and going past the superficiality of what comes up at the gross level and willing to go past that to deeper layers of experience. And I'll explain what that means in a second. The other part of this is that the Buddha thought that every student should know before they start on the path that there must be a willingness to be observant about karma. And if we take out the heaviness of the word karma for some of us and the associations with it, what he's really saying is you have to be willing 
to look at cause and effect. In particular, the effect that is caused by our actions, by the way we participate in the world. And again, I'll unpack this a little bit and explain to you why this is so important. So this willingness to explore subtler levels of pleasure and pain and the ability to be with or acknowledge the consequences of our action. I'm going to do the consequences of action first. And the reason being is that when we, we've talked about fabrication recently. So I'm going to go into that a little bit here and go a little bit deeper with this idea of karma and how we're supposed to be observant. But I just wanted to remind us that one of the big aha moments that the Buddha had, which he did not know prior to the journey, was that our actions can contribute to freedom. Like that was not known at the beginning of the path. The question was, is there happiness that's long-term and sustainable that is not dependent on outside causes and effects that is just cause, so to speak, or fabricated from within. And that was an open question. The Buddha didn't know. So when the Buddha discovers that, yes, we fabricate, we co-create our experience of the world, that was a huge breakthrough because then your actions have the consequences of liberation. You can do the work. If it was based on something else outside yourself, you might not be able to get those conditions in alignment to make the journey. So the idea that cause and effect is operating around this idea of freedom from suffering is huge. It's because karma does work that freedom is possible. So I'm going to go into this a little bit of why, which is why the Buddha says this at the beginning of the path. So as we progress in meditation, as we deepen our practice, as we mature in mindfulness, one of the things we begin to notice inevitably is how we're shaping the present moment, how we're fabricating our experience of living and the role we're playing in that experience of showing up moment to moment in our lives. This is something that starts to arise the longer we meditate, year after year, more we're in this, the more mindfulness shows us, oh my gosh, I'm participating in this moment. I can change how I'm participating to change the effect. And this becomes something that we begin to work on more and more, the deeper the path becomes. The way that fabrication works, our ability to participate in the present moment abides by the laws of karma. So karma is like the tectonic plates that run the background app of our participation in the moment. So all of the Eightfold Path works because karma works in a particular way. All of our meditative practices are intentional actions that have consequences and those consequences are being worked out through the cause and effect process of karma. So everything we're doing on the path is a result of the fact that cause and effect works a particular way in the universe. And so in a more in a more practical way of looking at it, we just say that fabrication is based on karma. Fabrication, our ability to sustain and uh, balance and cultivate particular heart-mind qualities through intention is a karmic act. This is why the Buddha brings this up at the beginning of the path. That being said, we actually have a huge challenge as humans. I'm not going to say we have a challenge believing, maybe accepting is the better word, 
there are challenges that we have with accepting that liberation can come from fabrication, that liberation can come from our actions. And I'm going to lay this out for you as to why we get hung up on it. And I've talked about this in other Dharma talks, but I think it's important in this context. Why is it challenging to accept the role we play in our own freedom? So let's talk about happiness first. The first thing about happiness is that sense pleasures are hugely intoxicating, including the intoxicants of the sense pleasures. We are hugely intoxicated by sense door contact. We love this stuff. And I'm going to speak for all of us. We love this stuff, right? We love sense contact. It's very fun, right? We love the pleasure of happiness. And there's a part of us that loves it so much that part of ourselves wants to believe that we truly can be happy with just sense contact. That if we just have another movie, another drug, another relationship, if I can just get some external thing aligned in my life, I will be happy. And so there's just part of us that really longs to have that be the case because the sense world is intoxicating. It's pleasurable. It's enjoyable. And we, we don't want to think that those pleasures of sense contact are actually a form of suffering. We don't want to accept that those pleasurable contacts are a form of dependence. And we don't want to accept the fact that we have to trade up outside of those sense contact happinesses in order to get to the liberation. And that we have to do it intentionally. It's born of our actions. It's born of our karma. And so it's just hard to accept it because it's just pleasurable and we don't want to look at the more subtle level of reality to see, oh, there's a higher happiness. So we don't want to let go. It's just the nature of, of who we are. So we really would like to find uh, contentment and satiation in the material world and in the sense world. And that's really not how it works. So our commitment to understanding karma is a commitment to really seeing ultimately that in order to be happy, we have to make that happen. It, it's not going to come from just the indulgence and sense pleasure. For most of our hearts and minds, that's not good news because we're kind of just dependent on that and we don't want to go there. So there's some pushback in the heart and mind to think that actually our fabrication and our inner experience is where the ultimate lies. We really want to think it's going to be in the next bong hit or something like that. We don't want to think it's going to be somewhere else. That's where we want it, where we want to go. So that's the first authentic challenge that we have. Conversely, on the other side, accepting that suffering also is coming from inside has a set of hangups as well. Thinking that Suffering is also a fabrication, has a bunch of little slippery slopes, and I'm going to list them. And you've heard them before, but in this context, I think it's important once again. Let me say this, I think, to help. Let us remember, <laughs> this is the biggie, let's remember that we are not here to liberate ourselves from pain. We are here to liberate ourselves from dukkha, which is this psychological byproduct of our response to discontent. Dukkha is psychological, pain is more physical. We are liberating ourselves from dukkha, the stress, discontent, and suffering that comes from the reaction of the mind. And this is just such a hard lesson for the heart, and I'll explain to you why in a second. So we just remember that we are here to liberate ourselves from suffering, not liberate ourselves from pain. Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. That's the summary there. But another thing we need to remember is that dukkha 
is pain that is sustained in the heart and mind by fabrication. The initial discontent is just you meeting the world, but all of the suffering that happens outside of that experience is from fabrication. It's the way we're responding. So the sustaining of pain from any event that's happened, that part really is all in the mind. The event's gone, whether it was traumatic or whatever it was, the actual event happened and that pain was something that happened. The dukkha is all inside consciousness. And that is, that's just tough to really kind of wrap our minds around because when we experience really intense dukkha, it really does feel like it's happening to us and we have no autonomy over it and we have no control. And that's kind of true until we practice otherwise. But in the moment and in the heat of it, it really feels like I can't stop this. If I want to like, you get really depressed. You don't think to yourself like, well, this is a fabrication of consciousness. It's just like, I want to get out of this. Why won't it stop? You know, if you're having a panic attack, it doesn't seem like in the moment that that's something your mind is creating. It feels like it's happening to you and you have no autonomy over it, which in a sense, it's true in that moment. But absolutely, as a Dharma practitioner, we know we can learn to, ch to change the fabrication, that the liberation actually comes from our actions. So here's the shadow side of this, which is where our heart clenches up when we talk about dukkha and pain and the separation between the two. We hesitate to really embrace that. First, because it can lead to self-blame, where we think to ourselves, well, if it's a fabricated experience, that means it's my fault. Like this trauma I'm having is my fault. My anxiety is my fault. My depression is my fault. And it's very easy to go there. And that's not where we want to go. But that's where we can go with this idea, which is why we tend to push away from it. And I'll explain how that works in a second. But it's good to know that there's this slippery slope that when we talk about dukkha, being something that we're creating and the Eightfold Path is teaching us to uncreate it, <laughs> to unfabricate the experience of dukkha, it can easily lead to self-flagellation, self-criticism, and a type of self-harm if we start blaming ourselves for the experience. Another thing it can do is it can decrease our empathy to other people because we might say to ourselves, well, if the person in my heart, mind, space is suffering from something, well, that's their problem. I mean, it's their fabricate. It's a fabricated reality. It's happening in their consciousness. They need to, it's their fault. <laughs> they should fix it, right? They need to change the reaction in order to fix the sadness or the sorrow or the offense or whatever it is. So we can go that route too, where we decrease empathy by blaming the other person for their fabricated experience. Again, not exactly what we're looking for as Dharma practitioners. A third hangup that we have is that if we think to ourselves, okay, suffering, again, not pain, but if suffering is created in consciousness, then how do we hold people accountable for the initial harm? How do we hold a system that's exploitive accountable? How do we hold someone who's harming somebody accountable? Where does justice and the social accountability come in a world where my suffering is caused by my own consciousness. And in that case, we can ignore the social justice part and say, 
well, that's just, you know, I can't do anything about the system. I'm just going to liberate my heart and that's just going to be somebody else's problem. So another slippery slope with this idea that karma and fabrication is creating the dukkha is that sometimes we can go into this really unskillful place where we think that we're also not accountable or it's not also our job to prevent that original pain from happening again. So just because, let me give you an easy to, to manage example. <laughs> so if something is happening in our world, there's some kind of system that's exploitive and harming people. Yes, the trauma from that is a fabrication, but that initial pain is still real. Somebody's doing harm. Someone is initiating some abuse and we want to prevent that. So we're going to pass a law or we're going to protest or we're going to get something changed. Of course, we're going to do that. But that doesn't change the fact that the only way to get out of the dukkha, which is the sustained pain from fabrication, is for the person's own personal inner transformation. You can't, you can't do that work for them. They're going to have to do that part. But it doesn't mean we don't stand up. We're not Dharma doormats, as you know I like to say. We don't let people walk all over us because we're going to be meditators. We still look at the source of the pain but we focus on the source of the dukkha. And here's part of the reason we, we move that energy towards the dukkha and rather than the source of the pain, which is something outside of ourselves. The reason we do that is that the only place we have real control is over the dukkha. We can influence the source of pain, but we can control and transcend the dukkha itself. That no one gets to tell us how our hearts can be open or closed. That's all on the inside. We have domain, jurisdiction, and autonomy from our hearts. We do not have that jurisdiction outside of ourselves from other people or towards other people. So another way I like to talk about it is we can't really legislate kindness, right? Like you can pass a law that says, hey, don't hurt people. That doesn't mean people don't have... 12 isms in their heart, right? Like you can say, hey, you're not allowed to like do this thing in the world that harms people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that person's heart is now open to being generous and kind and gracious and honest. So we can, we have full jurisdiction inside. So the dukkha can be transcended because we have complete autonomy there. But that doesn't mean we don't go outside to the source of pain and try to fix those systems and prevent people from causing harm. So I really want to emphasize that part of it. And sometimes we don't want to acknowledge the dukkha part because we're afraid that it, it implies that we're consenting to the harm at the greater level, that we are allowing it to happen or we believe that it's somebody's fault, our own or other. And we can really get trapped inside those delusions. And so it's really important to know that in the Dharma, the Buddha's focus was your inner world. The focus was the inside because that's where you have total autonomy. But the Buddha also teaches skillful action, which means we try to not encourage harm in the world at the superficial level as well. We, we have wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. We don't want to engage in harmful behavior. We can influence systems. We can influence other people to do less harm and encourage people to be kind and generous and compassionate. We can influence that, 
but we can do a heck of a lot more on the inside to the heart. We don't just influence our heart, we can transcend suffering completely inside. And so there's this tension here for meditators between how much do I spend on the inside? How much do I spend on the outside? And so the reason I'm bringing this up is that, again, the Buddha says in the beginning of the path, let's put this in context, that we really need to understand the nature of karma. Otherwise, we get stuck at a certain point. We have to understand the limits of our intentional action. Inside, we can have autonomy over our suffering. Outside, we can decrease harm, but we don't have control complete control other, over human, other human beings. We can encourage people to be kind. We can encourage people. We can pass laws. We can do all kinds of things. But that ebb and flow, that anicca outside of ourself is going to be something we have to accept the limits of our karma. And where this really comes into play, I think, in our experience is I was really moved, moved, disappointed, but moved, disappointed in my realization during COVID that people were really tripped up about wearing masks, right? Masks were a big deal. And what I realized during the pandemic was like, wow, we really can't force people to be kind and considerate to each other. We can't force people, we don't have the control to force people to wear masks or to do things like that, even if they're causing harm, we, we don't have that control. All we have is the control on the inside. We can certainly try to influence other people and be kind and ask politely and, and say, hey, can you do this because it could harm me? Or We can do that kind of stuff. So there's some influence there. But I really saw for the first time, wow, I don't actually have control over other human beings. I can't make them nice. I can't legislate in a way to make them not harm. I can certainly try to influence, but all I can really control is myself. And I saw it very clearly and I was very disappointed when I realized that how little control and how helpless I felt to, to feel safe in the world around other humans because I realized, wow, I don't have as much control over this as I thought. So I could see the limits of my intentional actions. I could see I could have some impact, but not full impact. I know that's a little abstract, but the main take home here is that the Buddha invites us to understand how karma works as we begin to walk the Eightfold Path. And what he's really inviting us to do is to explore the limits of what we have control over. And as Robert Beattie, we all know Robert, as Robert likes to say, we control what we can, can, and we love and accept what we can't, right? We find that balance in ourselves. We control what we can, the limits of our karmic and intentional actions, and we love and accept that which is beyond our reach, that which we can't control, we let go. And we strike that balance inside of ourselves. So it's really important, I think, to remember that the entire Eightfold Path is about exploring what do you have control over? How much, how deep can the acceptance go in your heart? How much can you influence that around you to decrease suffering? How much can you influence inside yourself to decrease suffering? And over time, you find you have a lot more autonomy on the inside than the outside. It's much easier to look at the reactions and decrease the dukkha than it is to change the source of the pain, which is why the Buddha spends so much time focusing on the inside and a lot less time 
focusing on the outside because there's so we're so limited in what we can do to prevent other human beings from doing harm. Where is the locus of control? And the locus of control in the Eightfold Path is the inward journey. And I, I think that the Buddha talks about this being an essential contemplation for all students as they walk the path, because every part of the Eightfold Path is an exploration of what can I actually fabricate? How can I create compassion? Can I really open my heart fully to myself and others? How honest can I be? What life arises from those intentional actions? The entire Eightfold Path is an exploration of karma and the limits and potential of human action. And the Buddha saw that as a miracle. He saw it as something to celebrate that we can choose to change how we show up in the world. And that was the big insight is that dukkha is a fabrication. So if we focus our locus of control there, whoo, there we can get some freedom. That's the place we can really get all the freedom. And again, it doesn't mean we don't go to the source of that pain to try to prevent harm in the world to ourselves or others. That's the wise action part, the other part of the path. But the focus is the inner karma. What can we actually do to free our hearts? Because that's where we have the most control. So I hope that's hope that's clear. I know it's a little abstract, but it's important. Let me pull this together. Understanding the power of karma means an exploration of personal responsibility. To what degree am I responsible to myself? And to what degree can I be responsible to and for others? And there's no answer to that. That is the journey. That is the journey of compassion is exploring that over and over and over again. But realizing that the power of intentional action to shape our experience allows us a doorway to freedom. And as long as we're mindful and we don't go the route of self-blame, self-shame, absence of personal responsibility, but we go the other way, we use the power of karma to be responsible, to want to show up as honest people, to want to show up as people who maintain precepts and try to do less harm. As long as we're focused there, then it's a really healthy framework for us to walk the path. It doesn't have to be a hangup for us. The other good news that I come back to time and time again is that the deeper the practice, the more mindful we become, the more wisdom that arises in the mind, the more compassion that arises in the heart, the more effective we are at positively influencing those around us. Because compassion lights people up. Honesty, sincerity, authenticity, and the role modeling of the past path inspires people. So if we really, in our lives, still want to look at the source of pain, not the dukkha, but the source of pain outside in the world, again, the best way to have influence on things outside of ourselves is to do the inner work, to become compassionate and to become wise so that when we are talking to others and encouraging others to do less harm, we can do it in a way that's compassionate. Uh, we can do it in a way that creates sustainable relationships. We can do it in a way that's non-violent. We can do it in a way that's non-exploitive. So that's another thing that's so amazing to me about the path is the inward journey to end my own dukkha and to transcend my own dukkha helps cultivate me into a person 
that's much more effective in working with others to deal with the outer world and to deal with the systems where a lot of that pain comes from. So the inward journey really becomes an outward expression. Like if the inward journey is done properly, then the compassion comes out and also helps ourselves and others externally. And that again is an understanding of the power of karma. What are my actions? How do my actions change myself? How do my actions change others or impact the world? So we're really looking at cause and effect here on a really deep and profound level. And once we realize both the power or the empowerment that comes from understanding how our intentional actions can transform ourselves, then a sense of contentment can arise. A sense of autonomy can arise because we begin to realize nobody has jurisdiction over my heart. I got this inside here. I can heal my own heart. It's not dependent on anybody outside myself. I can, I can heal this without it being dependent on outside circumstances. I can have access to happiness and love and joy. And nobody gets to determine that ultimately. Because again, we're talking about dukkha here. That dukkha can be transcended and I can have that. And the Buddha said, <laughs> oh my God, I was about to sound like a pre, I was about to say rejoice. <laughs> oh my God, suddenly I, I just picture myself a preacher. <laughs> the Buddha said rejoice in the power of karma, my friends. <laughs> Because it's liberating. The fact that our actions have consequences and that cause and effect is relatively stable allows us a doorway to freedom. So that we take joy in. It's not an imprisonment, it's a freedom. Okay, so that's the power of karma and why the Buddha invites us to consider a willingness to really authentically explore cause and effect to be a prerequisite or at least something we tote with us along the Eightfold Path. Because if we don't get into that and don't explore it, we're not going to understand the power of mindfulness. We're not going to see both the huge potential of eliminating our suffering, but also the limits as well. Where do we focus the effort to create the compassion, to create the change, to create the healing? That's all about karma. Makes me think I should probably give a Dharma talk on karma sometime soon. Okay, so karma was that that one. And the la the last part of this is a willingness to actively look for subtler and subtler levels of pain and happiness. I'm going to explain what this means because this is also equally important. Looking for more subtler experiences of both pain and happiness is also what the Buddha talks about as a quality of being observant. It's what we're intentionally supposed to be observing. Ram Das, there's this quote from this book. I still have it somewhere buried. Uh, Ram Das was interviewed once and he said this really interesting thing. He said, most meditators that he sort of were, was with, and I think this was mostly in the 70s that this, 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 this set of interviews was done. He said, most meditators will find that their practice stagnates after they begin to really heal childhood wounds. When they start really healing childhood wounds, their practice starts to stagnate and they begin to develop some pleasure on the path. When, the, when meditation and the hindrances start to be mastered and meditation becomes kind of fun and pleasurable when the mind can be quiet, at that point in practice, he said, he found students tend to really stagnate because they don't 
look further. There is less motivation to look further for subtler forms of suffering and more satiating forms of happiness. There becomes a type of complacency on the path. And I believe that that quote is exactly what the Buddha is talking about here. That as we move on the path, we have to be willing to go deeper. We have to be willing to look at subtler and subtler aspects of experience. And I'll give you a couple of prime examples where this shows up on the path. Happiness is the first part. As the hindrances start to get managed, as we learn to befriend them, as we learn to accept them, as we learn to fabricate around them, meditation becomes more pleasurable. And the pleasure of this sustained mindfulness, the pleasure of concentration, the pleasure of breath, the Buddha refers to as spiritual pleasure that is a deeper and higher pleasure than, say, outside kind of stuff, right? The sense contact happiness. The Buddha says this is a better happiness. But the challenge is, as we start to enjoy that inner experience and we don't move past it, and we have to remember that the pleasure of meditative practice is still not the pleasure of liberation. And as happiness becomes subtler and subtler in our practice, it becomes more and more pleasurable and we become attached to it in the same way that we became attached to the outside pleasure of sense contact. And so as our practice gets deeper, there is this point where we have to ask ourselves when it comes to the pleasure of practice, can I really look at this pleasure and see that it's still impermanent, that it still has a quality of dukkha and it is still not self? Can I lean into that? And that is a more subtle experience. And we don't have to do that. We can kind of rest in the pleasure of practice without moving further beyond that exploration. It's a type of exploration that you have to initiate on your own because it rarely, I mean, it can happen by itself. I'll say sometimes it does, but realistically, if you're just kind of sitting in the pleasure of meditation and you don't look to see the sharper, grosser edges of the pleasure, then it can just, your, your practice just becomes like, a, you can fabricate a state of pleasure and you kind of just rest in the state of pleasure. The Buddha is instructing us to not be complacent. We always want to look for deeper levels of satisfaction and deeper levels of dukkha. So let me show you how this works on the dukkha end. As Ram Das was saying, there's going to be some obvious healing that takes place as practitioners of mindfulness. Like, you know how this goes. Like, we feel better. There's healing that takes place as we're walking on the path. And as Ram Das was saying, there's this point where we've done a lot of work. Like, okay, we've been practicing for several years. We've got our meditation down. We go on retreats. And we're kind of living what we're calling a Dharma life. And we're, we're householders, so we're doing what we do in the world. Um, and there can be a kind of contentment and a kind of buoyancy to life on the path which again, we start to kind of fall into as a form of complacency and we don't look deeper to ask ourselves, is there a deeper suffering here? Are there more layers that I can look at with my mindfulness? Can I look deeper and ask myself, where is the dukkha? Where is the dukkha in this moment? And there gets to a point where 
suffering becomes subtler and subtler because you've done a lot of healing on the path. A lot of the gross suffering that's happened, you incur a lot of healing. The heart gets healed and you become healthier, you know, psychologically. And at that point, though, we have to ask ourselves, okay, is there a deeper dukkha, though? Is there not self here? Is there some element of discontent? And it can be really helpful to remind ourselves of this as we start walking the Eightfold Path, that at some point, we're going to have to be willing to be more observant. We're going to have to get beyond the contentment of the healing, beyond the contentment of the pleasure of experience, and find a deeper level where we can go. Because ultimately, our experience of liberation is a very subtle and delicate transition at the end of the path. So much so that, of course, we let go of all identity. We let go of all clinging, all craving, all fabrication. That's a very subtle reality. And so for a lot of students, they get complacent in practice and almost to the point at times where we think we're enlightened. It's like, you know, I can handle what comes my way. You know, for the most part, I'm kind of bopping along and we're like, I've got this, you know, until something really bad happens in life. And all of a sudden you've got a diagnosis of something or you lose a job or the death of loved one. You know, it's very easy to roll along in the path and be like, yeah, you know, there's dukkha, but you know, it's okay. I got it. Like I'm meditating. I'm kind of doing my thing. So we don't want to get complacent in that way. We want to constantly ask ourselves, in this moment, is there self? In this moment, where is the clinging? What am I clinging to? What am I craving or longing or grasping after? Where is the aversion? In this moment, where is the aversion? At this point in my life, what am I really struggling with? And again, this comes back to truthfulness, like we talked about the week before, which is if we're willing to be truthful, then we have to be willing to, to keep our practice moving with this gentle intention, this gentle investigation, this gentle effort. Because it is easy to kind of just fall into a complacency after a certain period of time and not want to ask. Or we don't want to find any more suffering. Right? I just want things to just be the way they are. We kind of want to keep our practice like in a still frame, right? To, to make it permanent because things in our life right now might be going pretty well. So again, the context for this is the Buddha invited us to consider as students, are we willing to be truthful? Are we really willing to be observant and continue to be observant no matter where we are in the path? To remind ourselves that our goal is to look for the suffering, to look for subtler forms of happiness. I'll give you one other example before we close. Two ways that this expresses itself. One is our precepts. When we begin the path, we might take the precepts as a general spiritual GPS to do less harm in the world. I don't want to lie. I don't want to take what's not freely given. You know, I don't want to, um, you know, don't want to gossip too much. I don't want to do too many. I don't want to abuse intoxicants and stuff like that. And we kind of have that as our GPS. Now, we can be complacent in that because as mindfulness gets more refined, if we revisit our precepts and we ask ourselves once again, at this point in my practice, do I see that there might be some subtle harm I'm doing in my speech that I didn't notice before? Can I notice things that I'm doing that I might have noticed, not noticed earlier? I, for my own personal example, gossip was a big, big one. I come from a long history of gossipers. And 
in the early days, I was like, yeah, you know, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna gossip so much, but I was still, still gossipy. It's kind of the culture I come from, and and then one day I kind of watched myself and I realized, wow, the the god, the way I'm gossiping in this moment, there's this, there's this like harm to myself and harm. I could feel this negative energy that I'd never noticed before in the moment. And it was like mindfulness cleared up a part of the action at a deeper, more subtle level that I that I hadn't really noticed. And so from that point forward, I was like, whoa, I gotta like kind of revisit the precepts every so often and ask myself, what is it to do harm in speech? What What is it to do harm like intoxicants? Another example is that the deeper the meditation the more you begin to see how you're using intoxicants, whether it's actual intoxicants or Netflix or whatever, how you're using those things to escape. And you might not have seen it early on because the mind wasn't refined enough. You couldn't see the subtle realities of some of the dukkha that was involved in some of the sense pleasures that you're engaging in. So if we don't revisit this intentionally, we can kind of just like, kind of float along, you know, I'm like a kind person, I don't lie, uh, I'm fine. But the Buddha really is saying, hey, in order to walk this path, you've got to be committed to being observant. you got to go back and check in with yourself because the mind loves to hide. It loves to deceive itself. It loves to say everything's fine and move on. But is it fine? Is there still self here? Is there still craving? I'll give you one more example. I was on a meditation retreat once, and uh, I think this was a Goenka retreat, so it was a 10-day retreat. And if I recall correctly, I'm knee-deep in this retreat, so we're 10 hours a day, so you know, we're talking 50, 60 hours of meditation, so I'm like completely lost in mindfulnessville at this point. And I get into the shower, and I didn't bring my shampoo with me into the shower. And I'll never forget this. I looked over, and someone forgot to take their shampoo out of the shower. And my first thought was, well, I'll just take some of theirs. Like, whatever, it's sitting there. What does it matter? And in that moment, my thought was, but that's not freely given. And I watched as my mind justified taking it to serve my own needs without consideration for the other person. My mind was like, what, what does it matter to them? They're not going to know. Like the whole kind of justification for the craving and the longing to have something in the world. And when I saw my mind doing it, I was like, oh, this is what they mean by like mindfulness and the ethics. Like, you know, it's not freely given. Are you going now? Of course, relative to all the harm that could be done in the universe, that is not a huge harm, relatively speaking. But I could feel the contraction of the heart in the moment. I could see the subtlety. I would have never seen that years prior to see that because there was craving in this kind of grasping of like, I want it though. I should be able to, I want it, it's right there. I, I can just have it, I can take it. And feeling that kind of greed and that longing for the moment to be something. It's like, I don't wanna to have to go out and get the shampoo, that's inconvenient. I'll just take something from somebody else to make my moment the way. So it's those kind of things that we can hide from ourselves and we don't see the more subtle aspects of the path. As we grow in the path and mindfulness gets clearer, we can revisit parts and keep being observant and keep checking in with ourselves. Are my actions causing harm? Can I see a deeper power or empowerment with my karma? Can I do less harm to others? And we just keep revisiting, 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 and that's the refinement of the experiment. 
experience. So, so I didn't take the shampoo. I just didn't wash my hair <laughs> that, that moment. And the world did not fall off its axis or anything. My retreat was fine and I didn't take something that wasn't freely offered. And that was just kind of the Dharma doing what the Dharma does. So uh, that's how that works. Thank you for your kind attention. I know we're at the hour, but I kind of wanted to wrap that up uh, for us. So truthfulness and a commitment to being observant looking at intentional actions, looking at their limits, looking at the power of them, and always coming back to look for subtler and subtler experiences with our mindfulness and our concentration. The Buddha says those qualities make a successful student on the Eightfold Path. So thank you, my friends, for showing up tonight. I love hanging out with you. How fun. I just, yeah, thank you so much for coming and being here in this uh, whole experience for Wednesday Wake Up. I love it. Uh, for those who can stay, let's do a little meta. For those who have to leave, thanks for the generosity of your presence. And I appreciate you attending. And I'll see you next week. And take a few intentional breaths. And on the exhale, let's relax back into this sitting body. Noticing how it feels to be sitting here 90 minutes later. Notice the energy, the physicality of your being in this moment. Notice if the mind is thinking, mulling something over. Notice what the body is actually feeling like. Let's bring acceptance there. This is what's so. Body sitting, body breathing, body thinking this, body feeling that. We just welcome it all in. our commitment to being observant in this moment, noticing with a sense of curiosity. And based on the talk tonight, what we can do now is test, test the boundaries of our intentional actions, taking notice and what happens when we practice some loving kindness? What happens to our heart and mind when we wish ourselves well and wish well for all beings? That power to say in this moment, I am going to be loving. In this moment, I am going to be caring. Let us thank ourselves for this evening of practice. Let us wish well for all those beings in our sanghas, practicing mindfulness, meditating, cultivating compassion. This giant community of meditators all around the world, folks practicing together with this aspiration to be free, 
to be kind, to be joyful, to be loving in this very life. And let us conclude this evening by asking ourselves if we could wish anything for all beings tonight and know this wish would come to pass. What wish would we offer? What does your heart long for for all beings? May our hearts be filled with joy and delight. May we be free from suffering in this very lifetime. well, my friends. See you Sunday or next Wednesday. Take care. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.